At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Do you want to save money at the grocery store? Eat more organic, whole foods? Cultivate food security and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Colin Austin to talk about the invention of wicking beds and biologically intense vegetables. Many years ago, at the birth of the computer revolution, Colin learned to write code, and he set up a company which grew to become Australia's leading exporter of technical software. Then, 20 years ago, Colin developed a growing system, which is known today as wicking bed technology, and has gone viral worldwide. He runs a website, waterright.com.au and a newsletter which are leading sources of information on wicking bed growing technology around the globe. Colin's wife was very healthy and after moving to Australia from China she developed diabetes when she transitioned to a western style diet. Consequently he has spent many years studying the causes and remedies for diabetes. This complex disease involves many factors such as genetics and lifestyle stress, but the dominating one, of course, is diet. As a result of this research, he is developing a new farming technology for growing in nutrient-dense soil, which is very biologically diverse. He says living soils are based on recycling waste and are regenerative. He believes we have been destroying our soil and that we are now approaching what he calls peak soil. Welcome to the show today, Colin. 
pleased to be here. Well, thank you for being here. It's actually, um, I'm quite excited to talk with you today, being that you are the person that developed wicking bed technology, and we'll get to that. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Well, it's a long story, but uh, I mean, basically, I'm an engineer, uh-huh. and I came through. In fact, I was, I was a university lecturer, and I first saw computers, and I thought that this mm. is going to totally revolutionise uh, engineering, engineering design. Yep. So uh, I, I set up a company, which was basically involved with fluid flow, and it was just like being on the tail of a tiger. It just grew and grew and grew. It became one of the largest exporters of technical software from Australia and was eventually purchased by one of the American software giants for the best part of half a billion dollars. Wow. Which meant, which meant that I could do whatever I wanted to in life. Now, yeah. I've, always been very, I've always been very passionate about the environment. And so I said, well, how can I use my expertise? And so I became very interested in, in water, how water was used all the way around the world. So I toured around the world, looking at all the research institutes, and I picked up two technologies, which I thought were very important. Mm-hmm. One was subsurface irrigation, and the other one was irrigation scheduling because there's what I call the irrigator's dilemma. Right. In that if an irrigator puts on too small amount of water, it just hits the surface right. uh, and, then ev- and then evaporates, so it never gets to the root of the plants, and it's really a very inefficient way of watering. If you put on too much water, then the water just goes past the root zone, so you're wasting water. You're also flushing all the nutrients, nutrients out. Past- yeah. Past, past the root zone, which in a country like Australia has immense environmental problems. I guess you've heard of our, our little tourist attraction called the Great Barrier Reef. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, we've in fact been steadily destroying uh, our barrier reef by pushing too much nutrients in the direction. And there's yeah. a major issue here to stop all that nutrient runoff. So how do you fix the irrigator's dilemma? Well, my first attempt which was very much a, a, you know, an entrepreneur's technical approach, was to develop a piece of software which actually learnt the irrigation characteristics of the soil. Mm. So, you, so you apply a certain amount of water, and then you have to have sensors to measure where the water is. Right. So you use, you use soil moisture sensors to work out how deep the soil is, deep the, the water is penetrated into the soil. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that gives you like a starting point. Then you use that to almost like guess how much water to put on the next time, and you measure all the evaporation. So you know how much the water the plant's using. Uh, so you make a prediction of how much water you should put on. Next time you get it better, and then you do that three or four times. And by the, by the time you've done it three or four iterations, you now this self-learning software enables you to apply just the right amount of water for it to reach the root zone. Mm-hmm. That's the good news. Uh-huh. The bad news, it was <laughs> the bad news. It was really quite an incredibly complex piece of software. I'm this sure. was a long time. Uh, and of course, uh, this was in an era when software was you know, not as well accepted as what it was now. So it didn't really hit the uh, the jackpot like I was hoping. But another event occurred in my life in that I was asked by World Vision to go out to Ethiopia. They're aware of my interest in irrigation and water. This was in right in the middle of a drought. People were just dying of starvation because they just couldn't grow the crops. So they invited me to go out to Ethiopia to see if I could come up with any solutions. And uh, when I looked at what the problem was, it wasn't, in fact, a lack of rain. Uh, It was the variability of the rainfall. And you might start off with a good rainfall in the spring. The plants will grow good. Mm -hmm. But, you know, 
if, uh, if, if, if luck was against you and you just happened to miss rainfall in those two or three weeks when the seed heads are supposed to be filling out, then they just don't fill out, the plants die, and six months later, people are starving. Yeah. So I said, I said that the real problem here is to find a cheap way of storing water. Now, there's an issue here. There's various constraints on your design. The biggest of these is that the wealthy people are earning about $2 a day. So you can just oh. forget all... You can forget all monster, you know, irrigation dams and pumps and all this sort of thing. It has to be something that is very simple and crude mm. and was within the was within the reach of, uh, you know, a, a peasant farmer. Right. So I came up with this incredibly simple idea, uh, which is really just to dig a, dig a trench, line it with a piece of plastic to make it like a waterproof layer. Then, of course, the other problem they have is nutrients. So I got them to collect up all the... Uh, all the weeds, because weeds, in fact, are incredibly efficient at extracting nutrients yes, from the soil, much, yes. better, much, much better than food plants. People, yes, think that weeds, people think that weeds are bad, but they're your, they're your basic nutrient source. Yep. They can, so, so go up, collect up all your weeds, put them in the bottom of, the, uh, 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 of what is now called a wicking bed. Mm -hmm. That wasn't called a wicking bed at that time. This provides a nutrient layer. It also creates a sponge that can absorb a lot of water. And then you put the soil back on top, so it's just raised above the ground. And uh, I also had some wings with these things to divert the, any rainfall that came to fill up the reservoir, right. making maximum use of the water. And this gave you a way that you could uh, uh, maintain a reasonable quantity of water. I mean, can't compete with a 30 great dam, but uh, you could store a certain amount of water to ease out the fluctuations in the rainfall. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, this was really a very simple, cost-effective technology. Wow. So when I came back to Australia, you know, I put it up on my website just out of curiosity. Uh -huh. And uh, it was one of those things where things just go viral. It was picked up. And uh, uh, now wherever I go, you know, I go around the world and give lectures and talk about wicking beds. And like I was in Wuhan in China. And there's people from all over, from Russia, from Africa, right. uh, from Nepal. Oh, oh, they all knew about wicking beds. It's one of the <laughs> <laughs> amazing, amazing things in life, you know. Yeah. Love it. Gotta love the internet sometimes. So give me an idea of when that happened. When did you go to Africa? And we, we, we're talking about 20 years ago. Uh-huh. Wow. So over yes. the past 20 years, this whole notion of wicking beds has gone viral and people are using it all over the world. I'll bet you get a lot of emails from people about this. Well, you know, there's good things and bad things about the internet. One of the good things uh -huh. is it gives people access to an immense amount of information. Right. Uh, there's also a great problem uh, that often that information can become corrupted. Oh, yes. Uh, and, and this is very definitely what's happened with wicking beds. Uh, and in fact, there's a little story about this, but uh, Please. Uh, I, I, I had a pipe at the base of the wicking bed to fill them up. This, this is in, in, in Western society where you have access to water. Uh -huh. So I put a pipe in the in the base of the bed, and this was an aggie pipe. I, I don't know what you call them in the US, but uh, uh, like a drainage pipe with all sorts of, with myriads of little slots in. Yes, okay, uh, cool. Yeah, and uh, of course it just gets filled up with the soil. So what I did, I put a piece of cloth over that pipe yep. simply, to, simply to stop it being uh, jammed up by all the, all, all the dirt. Mm-hmm. This was, in fact, picked up by a certain person, uh, and they completely got it wrong because instead of having the idea that the plastic, that the cloth went over the pipe, they put it over the base level 
which was in fact my oh. uh, my organic material. Right. So now every so now and they were in fact a much better publicist than me. You know, I'm an engineer. I'm not a salesperson. Uh-huh. <laughs> they were they were much better at making videos and uh, uh, making things more entertaining than me. And now the standard method of making a video um, of making a wicking bed, you know, is to have stones, uh, which don't which are not water absorbent and they don't wick. Right. Put a layer of cloth on top and then put the soil on top of that. And it's totally wrong technology. Yeah. One of the frustrations of my life. Yeah. You know, I, ha- I have to tell you, when I first saw the wicking bed technology and I saw that design, it's like, hold on. How can that work? It can't work. Well, naturally, I did quite a bit of research to find out how it does work. Uh-huh. You know, water is an incredibly complex entity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's uh, many ways in which water moves through the soil. I won't give you a lecture on how water moves through the soil, but there's one particular method, uh-huh. which is uh, which is evaporation and condensation. Right. Uh, so uh, if you have a water level, uh, the water will evaporate, and you'll have saturated water, saturated air, well, air saturated with uh, with water vapor, right. uh, in the in the cavity. That will condense on onto any surface. If that's a hydroscopic surface, if it absorbs water, then the water will be absorbed on the layer of soil above, and then it will start to wick. Oh. So in fact, it's, it's it's an evaporation condensation process. So in fact, it does work. I mean, if it didn't work, people wouldn't do it. But absolutely, it's not wicking, and it's a relatively inefficient way of um, got it of, of transporting water. Yeah. The the whole trick about making wicking beds is to get the soil right. Right. If you get Soil should have a very high airspace, a very high volume, mm-hmm. uh, and, the, and the little uh, and the, this volume, in fact, comes from the creatures in the soil. You know, the yes. worms and all, all the microbiology in the soil. Yeah. Uh, so these go through, and they'll make the soil into a mass of little of little pores, which is then gives you a very large volume to hold mm-hmm. water. Right. I've in fact one of the little tests I do is a test that anybody can do. They just take a sample of their soil, they put it into a beaker, they weigh it, then they fill it with water again, and then reweigh it, and that immediately tells you what the void content of the soil is. Oh, and yes. if you've got if you've got a good soil, uh, it should be at least 50% voids, or maybe even more. Uh, if you've got a high organic content in the soil, and I use organic material basically as a fertilizer. Right. And also to feed the biology, to mm-hmm. create the pore space in the soil, then you end up with a soil which can have 70-80% void space. And if you put something like vermiculite in it, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, then, then you can get up to in the 80s and 90% void right. space. Now, the big advantage of this is if you don't have a, you don't have a cloth above, so the roots can go right the way down right. into this highly, highly nutritious base. And when you get to this highly, and when the roots get to this highly nutritious base, they will suck out all the water. So the water is continually moving, and they're also picking up all these nutrients. And doing it that way, you never have to worry about the problems that happen so often in wicking beds of the water turning putrid. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. So, wow. So you had a software company that did epically. Now you've created this wicking bed technology 20 years ago, and it's gone viral. And your wife comes down with diabetes after starting to eat a Western-style diet. Uh, What did you do about that? Well, my my wife's Chinese. When she came to Australia, you know, she developed diabetes within a couple of years. Wow. Uh, And that was very clearly a diet-related thing. Diabetes is all about diet. Yeah. You know, the medical profession uh, can 
soften the impact of diabetes by controlling your blood sugar levels. But controlling the blood sugar level, that's a symptom of diabetes rather than the cause. If, if you're going to resolve diabetes, you have to get back to the real uh, issue, mm -hmm. uh, which, is, which, is, which is insulin resistance. Right. Um, insulin, resist, ins, insulin resistance comes from, comes from diet. So you have to change your diet mm. if you're going to actually, if you're going to reverse diabetes. You can manage it, but you can't reverse it by the pills. You've got to use diet right. to reverse diabetes. I started off a, a massive research project to try and understand the relationships between diet and our health and how our bodies work. Mm -hmm. Oh, gee, this is a fun area. There is so <laughs> much con there, there is so much controversy. You know, yeah. it almost boils down to like a religious cult. You know, right. you these people, these people who are, I mean, I, I'm not being derogatory to them. You know, they've got evidence for it. But uh, what they're saying is that if you eat too much fat, uh, this is going to be wrong. So you've got to have a completely or virtually fat-free diet. Mm -hmm. You get a, you get another school says that this is absolutely wrong. Uh, if you eat uh, too much, uh, if you cut out all your fat, you're going to end up by eating carbohydrates. If you, add, if you eat carbohydrates, the body just turns them into sugar, which mm -hmm. makes it worse. To get rid of the sugar, your body produces insulin, and you essentially become addictive to insulin. Right. And, and you and you lose your insulin insulin sensitivities. So they say this diet is in fact making you worse. What you've got to do is cut down on your uh, on the output of your insulin. You've got to reduce the insulin in your bloodstream. Right. And then there's a third school of thought that says, look, what you need to do is have a lot of fiber in your diet. The fiber helps slow down the absorption of nutrients of your food right uh, so you've so you avoid all these uh, sugar spikes and because if you get a sugar spike you're going to get an insulin spike right this, i'm talking about type 2 by diabetes here mm -hmm. type 1 is totally, totally different i looked at all this stuff and i said well you know who do i believe <laughs> <laughs> right exactly <laughs> yeah and uh, you know I, I just written a nice little article about people who designed an airplane but they forgot to put a rudder on it i use this as an analogy for our body you know, we're doing all this work trying to study the mechanics, but we're not looking at the control. Mm. And our control comes from our gut biology. Yeah. Now, if there's if there's one area of medical research which is really exciting, if I reckon it's the most exciting area of research in any uh, area of technology, and that's the gut biology. Right. Because people are really beginning to understand that the gut biology really controls your whole body. We produce a mass of, of hormones which control our cranium brain. Mm -hmm. you know, we talk about the gut brain and the cranium brain. These are totally interlinked both by uh, the vagus nerve, uh, which is, it directly links them, and also by these hormones that we produce. Now, we've identified, you know, every time I read a new article, I come across a new hormone. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I wouldn't mind betting there's a whole bunch of hormones we don't even know exist. But you have this incredibly complicated system which really monitors our body. Uh, and you're not going to uh, cure diabetes or, or any of the other uh, communicable, non-communicable diseases, you know, like hearts, heart attacks and strokes, unless you really sort out your gut biology. So my interest right. has been how to, how, how to change gut biology. Now, I've done all sorts of experiments with some of the commercial probiotics that are supposed to change your gut biology, and really I've been very disappointed with the results. Mm. So I, I gained back to the old conclusion, you really have to uh, change your diet, and you've got to start eating food on a regular basis, which is going to change your gut biology. Uh, and uh, so my latest series of experiments has really been to uh, grow vegetables, which uh, have a very high biological content. Wow. Essentially, the essentially the system I developed up is just a natural extension of the wicking bed, to be honest. Right. Except, in, except instead of having one or two chambers, it really has three chambers. 
I've got an external water chamber. Uh, I've got the area where I'm actually growing the vegetables, and I've got another area where I'm actually decomposing materials. So I'm actually feeding the biology. Growing biology is like a farmer. Uh-huh. You know, you've got to have your inoculant in the first place, and then you've right. got to feed it, you've got to water it, and you've got to give it the right conditions. And then it will bacteria just breed like I'm going to say they breed like rabbits, but they breed much faster than That's rabbits. What, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's about a, it's, it's, it's about a 20-minute cycle rather than a two-week cycle. <laughs> wow. Uh, so, so, so you get this fantastic reproduction of the, of the beneficial biology. So that was the, uh, so that, that, that's the basic technology I've been experimenting with these last, this last period. Yeah. But, but there's always a snag. Every time of course. Technology, technology is always two steps forward, one step back. And the problem with this enriched biological vegetables is, of course, that that biology is unstable. Uh, mm. So if you go and try and store your vegetables, then you're going to lose a lot of the, the, right. uh, the biology. Oh, yeah. And of course, this, this is what happens commercially. Like you go and buy uh, vegetables from the supermarket. I mean, they look fantastic. They're beautiful and they're clean. There's no caterpillars or weird and wonderful creatures on them. Right. Uh, and, they, and they go through a very intensive process. I mean, they usually... Uh, uh, I don't know how about the US, but in Australia, uh, the big supermarkets, they'll acid wash the vegetables oh, three gosh. times. Yeah. Uh, and they'll kill off all the bacteria that's on the surface of the vegetables. Mm-hmm. And they do this. This extends the, the shelf life. If you've got bacteria on your vegetables, it will start to degrade uh, well, almost immediately. So you may get two or three days out of the vegetable. Uh, if you clean them and kill off all the bacteria, then you can extend that to almost weeks rather than, rather than days. Right. Although re- really your biggest benefit in the first few minutes any, anybody who's picked a pea from a pod and eaten it straight away without having any delay will realize it's a totally different tasting beast to what you, what you eat if you buy commercial peas. Right, exactly. Uh, so, so this gave me a little issue of how can I uh, extend the shelf life without killing off the biology. Right. And in fact, that's very well-established technology, which has been used for years and has probably meant and probably kept – diabetes at bay historically and that's fermented vegetables Mm. Uh, because when you ferment the vegetables you are in fact allowing the bacteria and it's not just bacteria there's there's a whole range of biology there Uh, it it enables these to be enhanced if you have fermented vegetables a they keep for a long time so you solve this shelf life problem but you've also probably increased the biologically that you know the biology to make it much more effective at changing your gut bacteria right uh so that's my current area of research. I, I guess so I do have one little thing that if you look at conventional, conventional fermented vegetables, of which the common one would be sauerkraut, right. uh, at, least, at least in the West. If you go to, go to Korea, they have kimchi, uh, but you have to have a special stomach to absorb that because it's so bloody hot. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, sauerkraut is what we think of as fermented vegetables. And mm-hmm. this really isn't very appetizing sort of thing. People aren't going to start eating sauerkraut by the millions of tons. So what I'm experimenting with now is how can we have a whole range of vegetables in this to to make it taster uh, and even adding fruit to the um, thing. So it it comes out with a, you know, a pleasant taste that people want to eat. Now this, this, this is all, this is all experimental stuff. So I shouldn't be talking to you about it, but you asked me the question, sir. I've always had a big mouth. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, you're doing great here today, and it's great information. So you're taking, basically, if I hear you correctly, what you're doing is you're taking these biologically active vegetables that you have grown, 
in biologically active soil and you're harvesting them and using them to ferment basically as soon as they come off of the plants. That's right. Yeah. I, I, I'm using a two-stage fermentation process. Uh-huh. I, 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 I put them into uh, containers, which in fact have access to uh, a bit of access to the air. Right. Uh, I let them ferment for two or three days, and then I put them into sealed containers. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, th- this isn't new technology. The no. Chinese have been doing this for probably 2,000 years. Right, <laughs> or longer. Yes. Yeah. So when you're growing the plants, which is basically biologically active water, right? Well, th- there's biology in the water. There's also the biology in the soil. It's it's a biologically active matrix, shall we say? Uh, perfect, perfect. Now, do the now that comes on the plants? Do the plants actually uptake it inside of the plants? That is something that we need a lot more research. They uh-huh. certainly seem to be on the surface of the of right. the vegetables. What hap- actually is happening inside the vegetables? And of course, it all depends what it is. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm growing I'm growing root vegetables. You know, uh, things like beetroots and. Uh, radishes and things like this and then of course we've got things like onions uh what the biology inside is is, is another issue yeah. uh, and i just i just don't know the answer to that question yeah. that but, would be a curious thing to find out um, look the the, the the trouble with doing research is the more research you do the more questions you <laughs> of course <laughs> than need of course. Answer. yeah uh, uh, look, you know, as I say, you know, like I, I, I stumbled upon computers in, in the days of punch cards. Yeah. You know, there was no idea where it was going to develop. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, my life has been involved with technology and predicting what's going to happen. And I can just see that in the area of gut biology, we're in exactly the same position as we were with computers with punch cards. Right. And in 10 years time or 20 years time, our understanding of gut biology will be much greater yeah. and our health will be commensurately improved. Yeah. We're on a downward slide now with our, with our health. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> We've managed to overcome most of the infectious diseases. But we substituted those with these um, non-communicable diseases in which we're damaging our body by the food we eat. Right. Uh, so this is obviously when you're looking at public health. I mean, diabetes, the cost of diabetes is in the trillions of dollars on a worldwide basis. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's getting worse. I mean, obesity, uh, obesity is a massive problem. Obesity leads to, to, to diabetes. Right. And so this is, this is obviously going to be a major area of research over the next 10, 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Wow. Well, would you, I just want to thank you for this great work that you've done with the wicking beds and, you know, now this new work you're doing to help with, you know, with diabetes and really improving your gut health. Because it's my understanding if we improve our gut health, it really improves our overall health exponentially. Is that the case? Absolutely. There's no issue about this. I'd almost put it stronger than this. Improving your gut health is the first thing you have to work on. It's no good trying just to play around with with your nutrient content, you know, the fats or the carbohydrates. You have to get your gut biology work so you want to eat the right sort of food. This is what controls your body. The the food you eat is just the fuel and you need the gut biology to control your food. Mm -hmm. Wow. Cool. So... In your research, as you've as you've processed through this and you're doing the work that you're doing, what is one of the curious things that you have found uh, about this? What what one thing did you look at and it kind of had you sit back and go, hmm, that's interesting. 
Well, it, it's probably nothing to do directly with the gut biology, but it's very much to do with diet. Uh-huh. And that uh, there's a psychological factor here. Mm. You know, I mean, when I was in Ethiopia with, with World Vision, I was working with another guy, and he'd spend a lot of time looking at native plants from Australia, mm-hmm. which, provide, which provided food for the desert dwellers. Right. Now, he thought, that, he thought that these do a fantastic job in Ethiopia. He took them out there, and the Ethiopians just would not eat this strange food. Right. And this, and this is exactly what I see here in, in the Western society. Mm-hmm. You know, people know that these foods are bad, uh, but they still eat them. And they know that foods are good and they refuse to eat them because they haven't, the, their psychology prevents them changing their diet. I think one of the fascinating and most important problems is what steps do you have to take to help people change their diet and yeah. a, a, adopt a food that they've probably never tasted before right i don't like i don't like tomatoes i know why i don't like tomatoes when i was a kid uh-huh. uh, my parents used to grow tomatoes and of course i was brought up in the war you know food was short so i had to eat these uh, you know almost like rotten tomatoes mm-hmm. and they have a horrible a rotten tomato has a horrible taste oh my that god still, yes. that, that still sticks in my in my brain yeah. and uh, I'm, I'm an old man now i'm 77 you know and this goes right back to my kids, but I've still never really been able to be comfortable about eating tomatoes. I yeah. force myself to eat them, and when I find they're okay, I'm okay. But I still have that rely, that resilience, you know, that thought impregnated in my brain. Yeah. Hey, tomatoes can taste yucky. <laughs> exactly. How do you, how do you get rid of it? Yeah. And this is a this is a, you know it's, it's not just a joke. It's a it's a major problem if we're going to change people's diet. Right. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. All right. Well, cool. Thank you so much for that great information. And at this point, I want to shift on you. And I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. Yes. Well, this is a $64,000 question. My whole life has been involved in innovation. Uh Uh, If I was to put down on my curriculum vita if i ever went to a job again uh-huh. it would be I'm, I'm an innovator you know i'm always yeah. looking at, fascinated by new technology now if you're involved with new technology you can almost guarantee that 99 percent of the time it, it will fail uh-huh. uh, so <laughs> yep so, so, so part of being an innovator is the ability to if you like psychologically accept that things will fail in fact i, I in in research i have what i call the zigzag approach uh-huh. in that you start off on a particular route and, and you do your research and it fails. But when you do that research, that's going to give you another idea, which is going to zap you off in a totally different direction. Yeah. Uh, and then that's going to fail and that's going to zap you off in another direction. Now, I call this zigzag research. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, this is absolutely the opposite of what uh, public funding of research is. You know, you're, right. you're, you're a research, you put yeah. all your information down, you put your application in and you have to go through all these steps. If you went to, a, to, a, to your research funder and says look i've got a great idea i want to cancel what i'm doing and go off on this <laughs> you'll, you'll never get another grant right yeah <laughs> because, exactly because, exactly because they like this systematic approach if you're on the business of innovation you have to accept failure and throw it away and zap off in some other direction yeah and it's a psychological attitude towards uh, towards technology and how new ideas come yeah so i would not advise anybody about how to uh, how to invent it's just just accept failure as part of life. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. What do you consider your biggest success? I mean, that's a difficult question. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, my original 
technology because I pioneered a new technology with fluid flow. That that was obviously and commercially very successful. Right. I think in terms of popular demand, the wicking bed has certainly mm. been very successful. In mm-hmm. terms in terms of reaching the market, it's been very successful. I just feel a little bit sad that the technology, if you like, has got corrupted, so people aren't getting the benefits out of the uh, out of the technology that they should. So that's a that's something that is sad for me. But hey. You know, it was basically me that initiated it. Uh, I won't say I invented the wicking beds because wicking beds have been around for, for thousands of years. Right. I mean, they are, they're, they are natural. You go out to any desert uh, and you'll see a clay pan. On top of the clay pan, there's a layer of sand. Mm. Uh, that gets filled with, the sand gets filled with water and that's a natural wicking bed. That's, yeah. that's, that, that's the original concept behind the wicking bed. So I won't say I developed the wicking bed. I won't say I invented the wicking bed. I, I, I certainly uh, developed it up into a, if like a formal method of growing. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I'm certainly instrumental in, instrumental in, in getting its popularity. I'll say it, it got, um, uh, you know, it got a bit, the technology got a bit corrupted. Yeah. I think the work I'm doing now on diabetes and all all non-communicable diseases like mm-hmm. heart attacks, drugs. I think this could have much more uh, profound impact because it is such a horrendous problem. Oh yeah. Uh, and it's uh, I mean, it's work in progress, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I guess one of the things that worries me about life, you know, I'm 77 years old. I'm not going to see the end of this. I'm going to die before it's uh, yeah. before before the work is finished. So the question is, how do I pass this on to the next generation of right. younger people? Yeah. So they pick up it's like like a relay race, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I've got to hand the baton on. <laughs> so what drives you? Why do you do what you do? Look, I mean that would mean getting involved in um, in the psychology. You know, I mean I was brought up in the war, and uh, there was two things that were very obvious in the war one was that um uh was the food situation yeah yeah so i was born in england and i migrated to australia but food was i mean the germans tried to starve england into submission yeah so food was absolutely critical so i've got a bit of a fetish if you like about uh, about food i think the other thing you know i was a young kid in that era and of course the bombing was on such a massive scale they started building new, new estates and new towns which weren't a great social success, to be honest. But, you know, you, you, you imagine a young kid. Uh, all my playgrounds are being taken up by building sites. Right. Uh, I could, I, I, this has made me very, very sensitive to the damage that uh, mankind is doing to mm. the environment. So yeah. uh, certainly not a fanatical greenie. Uh, but <laughs> hey, I've got a lot... I've got a lot of green tinge in my blood, I have to tell you that. All, all the work I'm doing, uh, you know, with water and soil and nutrients and, and the trace minerals, which, which are another issue we haven't even talked about. Right. Very, very important. We, mankind has to learn how to manage the earth on which we live. And this is something which is deeply ingrained in my thinking. Yeah. So I'm all about education. And I have to know, is there a book that has been influential for you in this process? Look, there's been lots of uh, people and books that have uh, uh, influenced me. Uh-huh. I think uh, I think the work of Bill Mollison with permaculture mm. yeah. would have to be one uh, one of the most important uh, concepts that, uh, that that has influenced me. But there's been a whole range of people who've written about uh, written about the environment and the, imp- the impact that mankind has had. But you know, if, if you're looking for number one, it would have to be Bill Mollison. Yeah, perfect. So, what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I think I would have to say 
that we should be understanding man's role in the position of the world. Mm. You know, we live on a very delicate, I'm not anti-globalization, but I think one of the dangers that's happening at this in, in the moment, and you can see it in politics with, you know, with, with, with Trump and Brexit and even here in Australia, that people are becoming very dissatisfied with some of the outcomes of globalization. And I think that somehow or other mankind has to manage this globalization process. So it, it provides benefits for all people, not just a few people. And it doesn't allow to go along in its uh, headlong rush just to just to make profits. And in sowing in doing so, destroy the world on which we live. Yeah. Well, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sitting here shaking my head agreeing. And yeah, I don't know the answer to it either. Let's hope I'm, Look, I, I'm 56 and you're 77. Let's hope one of the youngins that are listening out there uh, doing something about that, huh? Look, one of the things I hope that comes through from, uh, you know, from this interview that maybe somebody out there says, wow, I want to get involved with this guy. And, uh, you know, they can email me. I'm quite a chatty sort of person. Mm -hmm. uh, I get hundreds of emails a day and I usually try and answer most of them. So if there's people out there who want to pick up the baton and but run with me for a bit. Yeah. I'd be more than happy. That would be that would make this interview very successful. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Colin. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. Yeah. Okay. Good on you. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, I, I have a website. Okay. www. Now, it's waterright. That's all one word, but it's got a double R in the middle, so it's waterright.com.au. Now, if you're doing your Google, you need to put the .au on the end because I think it's the University of Telsa have waterright.com. Oh, so okay. you need to get waterright.com.au. And that's my email, Colin Austin, dead simple, at bigpond.com. Very good. Very but good, uh, if, you, if, you, if, if you go onto my website, you know, I, I have a contact me and there's my email on there. Uh -huh. In fact, you know, if, if you Google wicking beds, you know, you'll probably find the water right uh, website there yeah. anyway. Yeah. Perfect. 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 Well, you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org backslash Colin Austin. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. 
We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.